Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Fred T. Lee Jr., all the way from Madison, Wisconsin, America's dairy land. Today, we'll be discussing Fred's illustrious career in interventional radiology, his interest in minimally invasive tumor ablation, and how his fertile mind and driven personality have helped start companies to bring new therapies to the patients that they can assist. Fred was born in Okinawa in Japan and is an academic, a researcher, a science communicator, and a prolific entrepreneur. He was educated in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and also studied Chinese in Kinghua University in Beijing. He went to Boston University for combined degrees in medical science, history, and of course, medical school, graduating from his BA, magna cum laude. He did his surgical internship at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts, and radiology residency at the University of Rochester in New York. He was the General Electric Radiologic Society of North American Scholar between 1996 and 1998, and completed the Physician Leadership Program at the University of Wisconsin in 2008-2009. Dr. Lee is currently Professor of Urology, Radiology, and Biomedical Engineering and holds the Robert A. Turrell Chair in Imaging Science. He's also held other venerated positions, all at the University of Wisconsin, where he's been a faculty member since 1991. Fred's interest in minimally invasive methods to address cancer led him to establish the Tumor Ablation Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, one of the first of its kind. Alongside this, he's a founding member of the International Working Group on Tumor Ablation, and his entrepreneurial flair has led him to establish three venture-backed biotech startup companies. Given his enthusiasm and drive, you'd not be surprised to know that the good professor has multiple honors, is involved in several leading professional medical societies, and does all the varied activities we've come to know of highly accomplished medical professionals, including, wait for it, over 250 publications in peer-reviewed journals. He makes me feel positively, I don't know, boorish in comparison. Fred is married to an internal medicine physician and told me that he had two original career goals. He was either going to play basketball for an NBA team or be a professional musician. He plays violin and viola. However, a combination of a certain lack of height, shall we say, he's five feet seven, and lack of talent, his words, not mine, resulted in Dr. Lee going with his third choice of medicine. And on reflection, Fred said that his accidental choices of music and history were outstanding training vehicles for an eventual career in academic medicine. I think I can say that we're all pleased that he did become a doctor. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fred Lee. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Jonathan. I I have to say that we've got something in common. I think I'm testimony to the fact that short Jewish white men can't jump because I tried playing basketball at school and succeeded in breaking both my index fingers, trying to get a rebound. And my guitar playing was so atrocious that my uh, my teacher told me it would be a service to humanity if I put the instrument down. Um, <laughs> cracked me up. So let's go. I love origin stories, Fred. Your father, also Dr. Fred Lee, was a pioneering radiologist and 
interventional prostate researcher who won numerous scientific awards. How did his extraordinary career influence your education and pursuit of a career in a similar field? Because sometimes kids go in a completely different direction. Tell us about your dad. Well, we're all products of our family, aren't we? And I came from an immigrant family who came from China in the early 1900s. My grandfather was an uneducated peasant, an illegal alien here in the United States. And my grandmother was slightly more educated, but uh, but still fairly down on her luck uh, economically. They had an arranged marriage, and they settled in Buffalo, New York, in the ghetto, where they raised seven children and sent them all to college and graduate school and medical school from a Chinese laundry that was mostly active during the Second World War. My father was the third of the seven children, and he was a pretty remarkable guy when he was very young. He almost died of asthma many times. In those days, the treatments were very rudimentary, but he eventually survived that and went on to college and medical school where he graduated at the top of his class. He trained in Chicago and in Boston at Peter Bent Brigham and eventually settled into private practice where he thought that he was going to have a really quiet career just doing general radiology until one day he was trialing some new ultrasound equipment, and essentially diagnosed himself with prostate cancer. Yeah, it was a pretty pretty terrible moment. This was in the mid-1980s. And at that point, he kind of got angry at the state of the art of what was known about prostate cancer, both from the diagnosis and from the therapy side, and decided to really make the rest of his life all about researching in advancing the field of prostate cancer, which he did. He published his last paper at the age of 85. He died in 2016. And I, I still remember when, when he was dying, uh, we, he died of, of cancer. And we had a, a couple of weeks when we knew that the end was near. And his regrets were several. One, that he wasn't going to see our daughter graduate from medical school, but also that he he felt like he wanted to do more. He wanted to advance the field of prostate cancer research even more. And at that point, he was 86 years old and, and dying, and he was still feeling that way. So a really amazing, tremendous person from an extraordinary immigrant family. It's one hell of a story. It really is. And it, very moving and very inspiring. Well, let's continue the origin story. So you were born in Japan, as I said in my intro. College and med school in Boston, internship just to the west of Boston, I believe, in Worcester, residency in New York State, and the Midwest since then. Wisconsin, land of lakes, cheese, liberal politics, top universities, very chilly winters, and what I consider one of the strangest pursuits on the planet, ice fishing. What took you to Wisconsin, and what's kept you there for, what, 31 years? Well, first of all, I would be remiss to let the shot at ice fishing go unchallenged because this is a a religious pursuit uh, in the winter. (laughs) I just want to tell you, I've done it and I ain't buying this religion. But anyway, go for it. (laughs) You know, uh, the people here, I, I think it's a little bit of an excuse to drink beer in a heated ice shanty, watch the Green Bay Packers on television and maybe avoid your family or something. Oh, but, that's the key thing. 
Someone once described it to me as the sign of a very bad marriage. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, It could be. It is a sign of spring here, though. We know that that spring is here when the first ice shanty falls into the thawing <laughs> lake. So that's that's our first sign. Not the birds chirping or anything like that. It's the ice shanties sinking into the lake. <laughs> In all seriousness, it, it's a beautiful state. Madison is a lovely town. I've done a couple of projects with the folks there, and it's it has many many things to commend it. Although I I have to challenge. Uh, the Wisconsinites' use of the word cheddar to describe one of their cheeses. Cheddar comes from, you know, an area in the southwest of England and nowhere else. But there we go. <laughs> but Fair enough. Place. And you've been at the university in all that time, yes, Fred? Yes, absolutely. I came here because I was recruited here by my mentor from the University of Rochester, Jack Thornberry. And he came here to take over uh, our section and asked me to come with them when I finished uh, radiology training at the U of R. And at that time, you know, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is not that far from here. But in Ann Arbor, we always looked to the east. We always thought that New York and Boston uh, and those areas were where educated people came from and went back to. And so I always thought that I would end up in the east. And my wife is from New York. And so I always thought I was going to be there. However, when Thornberry came here, you know, he asked me to come take a look. And, and I still remember because I came out the first time and absolutely loved it. It was beautiful here. People were extraordinarily pleasant. And the university is really, it's, it's not that big a secret here in the United States, but maybe it is worldwide. It's, it's one of the top 10 public research institutions in the United States. It has a huge undergraduate campus really accomplished professors in all the various fields. And yet it still has a Midwestern, easygoing, not a high friction sort of vibe to it. And and growing up in the Midwest, I didn't realize how much I missed that until I came back. And since since we've been here, we have absolutely loved it. You know, I've had many opportunities to go elsewhere and looked at a few and just realized that this place is for me, it's, it's better for me to, to be here. And we've raised a couple of children and just loved it every minute. Yeah. I learned about the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation or WARF and that that was where warfarin came from. And, uh, I just, I, again, I'm, I'm tickled by such things. It is a great school. And as you say, one of the top schools in the United States. So let's dig down into your uh, sphere of influence. I was a trainee at London's Royal Postgraduate Medical School, the Hammersmith Hospital. And at the time, your field was exploding. And there was a chap there named Andy Adam. I doubt he's listening, but if he is, kudos, Andy. I was in awe of what he could do. And I learned a a heck of a lot from him. You've developed a focus on minimally invasive tumor ablation therapy, as I said, and you founded the first tumor ablation laboratory. What took you in that direction? And maybe you can take us, if you will, on a truncated journey as the field developed, where it's going, and so on and so forth. And eventually, presumably, you're going to put surgeons like me out of business. (laughs) Well, uh, first, Andy is an icon in our field. There's no question about that. And if you had a chance to work with him, you're very lucky indeed. So in terms of, of tumor ablation and how I got started in it, it's one of those typical accidental stories. At the time, that I got involved with tumor ablation. I was a junior faculty member 
and was working on various things with maybe I should say tepid enthusiasm. Nothing really struck me and nothing really made me think that this is what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Until one day I was at our big national meeting, which is RSNA, the Radiologic Society of North America. Every year it's the week after American Thanksgiving in Chicago. So this is late November or early December. So the weather's terrible, which means that you listen to every lecture and, and nobody's off shopping or at the beach or something like that. So I was at a lecture given by uh, an Italian fellow named uh, Luigi Solbiati, who is really the father of, of this field, I would say. And Solbiati was talking about using tiny little needles, the same size needles that we use to do biopsies every day, and to drive those into a tumor deep inside the body into really dangerous areas in the liver and the kidney, and then destroying the tumor using heat or cold or, or other means. And when you pull the needle out, there's no bleeding, and the patients go home the same day. And this was the most remarkable thing that I'd ever heard. Now, remember, this is 1991 or 1992 or something, and I'd never seen anything like this. And the pictures that he was showing of tumors before and after treatment and people that are completely fine, they have a little bit of soreness afterwards, very few complications. And this seemed to be a pretty efficacious treatment. This I'd never seen anything like it and felt like I had to get into this field. Now, of course, being a junior faculty, I had no political pull and I had no resources of my own. So I came back to the university. I walked into our chairman's office and he's Joe Sackett. He's a neuroradiologist. And I said, Joe, this is the most incredible thing I've ever heard. I need you to buy me a couple of machines. And these are, you know, $100,000 machines. And this is, you know, the early 1990s. That was not a small request. But in my naivete, I thought, you know, these chairs are so powerful, they can do whatever they want. And Sackett looked at me and he said, how convinced are you that this is the future? And I said, there is no question in my mind that this sort of thing is going to be the future of medicine. And he said, done, what do you want? And within a week, I had all the equipment that I wanted. And so then there was the issue of having the equipment and being able to use the equipment and actually putting it into a live, living, breathing human being. And you have to remember in, in the early 1990s, this had only been done a few times, mostly in Italy. In the United States, there's only a few centers that were doing this, Mayo Clinic, Mass General, and that was about it. There were very few papers on the topic. And when I started to dig into it a little bit, I realized that there was almost no animal work in the area. And so what happened is that people were experimenting on humans, so to speak. I mean, not experimenting in the form of, you know, they had no idea what was going to happen, but the optimization of the devices and the exact shape and size of the area that you were going to kill, what happens to the tissue over time, none of that was known. And so I felt like I had an animal lab. I had a large animal lab at the university and I had this equipment and I kind of got cold feet about putting it into humans until I really understood what was going to happen in large animals. And so I started to put the devices into large animals, sectioning the all the livers and kidneys myself. And frankly, I was shocked at what I found. 
the results were completely different and inadequate compared to what the marketing brochures would tell you was going to happen. And I'm really glad I did that. I I must have gone through 100 animals with all the various types of equipment trying to figure out how they were going to work. And as I was doing this, and I would present my my findings at the international meetings, I found out that nobody really knew what was going to happen or what was truly happening. They were using imaging as a surrogate for what happens with pathology, which my father had taught me many years ago. That's just not good enough. You have to look at the tissue yourself. And so I feel like that my research filled a void at the time and still does to some degree. And it was the university giving me equipment, giving me lab space, having a chair, Joe Sackett, that believed in me that really exploded everything. And I started publishing and one thing led to another and companies started to come out of it. And we can talk about that in a moment, but it all started because a incredible Italian investigator was giving a lecture that I happened to be at. And to this day, you know, I look at Solbiati and I look at our chair, Joe Sackett, and I'm thinking, you know, you guys, you changed the world, you know, and it just takes one little spark like that. And somebody with a little bit of naivete and ignorance, but a lot of energy. And next thing you know, great things can happen. Yeah, don't talk yourself down because it takes guts to go to your chairman and and have faith in something you've heard and believe in it. I've been very fortunate to have those experiences. That's why medicine is a team sport, right? And, you know, people are reach the pinnacles on the shoulders of others. And it's very, very heartening and heartwarming that you acknowledge the contributions of those guys. So let's dig into this. So I think June of this year, you published a paper on microwave ablation in patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, liver cancer for those non-medics listening, which was chosen as the featured continuing medical education article for the Journal of Vascular Interventional Radiology. So tell us about this publication, key findings, Son. Yes. So just to continue on the theme of team, kind of team sports and and surgery, and and are we going to put surgeons out of business? The first author of this paper is Alison Couillard, who was one of our radiology residents, an extraordinarily good radiology resident at the time. And since the publication of the paper, she's decided to go back to surgery, which the people in my field, my partners, we were all shocked at, but she's so good at radiology and she's so good at surgery. She's going to be someone that's going to bridge the divide, so to speak, between the different specialties. And I'm sure, Jonathan, you have the same experience that I do about kind of putting people out of business and I'm going to take this and and we're going to own this field and all this stuff. The Over my 31 years in practice, the one thing maybe that I've learned is that cancer in particular, which is my area of interest, is such a complex and terrible opponent that there's not one tool, there's not one specialty, there's not one procedure that's going to cure it. We need everything to throw at it. And when every time I hear about miracle cures, and this is all you need to do, and both in the public press, and I have to say, sometimes some of our peers speak that way about a particular treatment, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit because we all know how humbling treating cancer is. You think you do a great job at something, and maybe you do, but it's it's 
just something else, how cancer somehow seems to be so resilient that it can get around even our best treatments. And, and so we need everything. We have to throw surgery and, and all the minimally invasives and non-invasive treatments that we have, drug therapies, radiation. We need everything. And I don't see that changing in the, in the near future. Our surgeons are as busy as ever, and, and we're as busy as ever. I just don't think this is going to change for a long time. I don't think you have anything to worry about. <laughs> Actually, it was said sort of half-heartedly because I would like nothing better for the, you know, I was involved in the generation of minimally invasive techniques and primum non nocere, firstly, do no harm. So more power to your pencil. Let's find better ways to treat patients because we're all going to be patients sooner or later. So as you and I have been discussing as we prepared for this, I've always enjoyed the innovation journey and all the elements from concept to exit. So tell us about one of the companies you were involved with as founder all the way to sale, New Wave. As I understand, they developed microwave energy devices to zap tumors, yes? Give us the high and low points, if you will. Absolutely. And the story takes on from when I was explaining that in our animal lab, we were finding that the current devices were very insufficient. They were unpredictable. The areas that were being treated were either too small or too large or misshapen. And the ability of physicians to control what was happening inside the human body using the current devices was just insufficient. And so that was my starting point in the early 1990s. As the 1990s went on, and I became a little bit more familiar with some of the incredible people around me here at Wisconsin, I started to talk to engineers and medical physicists and physicians from other specialties and realized that we might be able to overcome some of the limitations of the current devices. And so one day I walked over to the engineering school, which is fairly close to the medical school, and I started knocking on doors of engineering professors. And I asked them, I have this idea for improving devices. Can you help me with this? And I have to say, I got laughed out of a lot of offices, but eventually one professor by the name of John Webster, and he was involved with the, he knows, he knows a lot about the introduction of electricity into the human body because his research was on the taser. Uh, so a slightly different purpose for electricity in the human body than what we're interested in. But nonetheless, there's a fair amount of similarities about what I was trying to do and what he was doing. And he put a graduate student on the problem that I was trying to solve. And next thing you know, we had our first device that was licensed to Medtronic. After that, uh, when this graduate student named Dieter Hamrick was getting his PhD, I walked into the PhD defense and this guy comes in and he's got long hair and he's wearing a motorcycle helmet and motorcycle leathers. And he's a very tall, imposing figure. And he starts to give Dieter a little bit of a hard time. And he said, why are you using micro, uh, radio frequency energy to do this where microwave energy is really the way to go? It's more controllable, it's predictable, it's hotter, it's faster, et cetera. And I kind of got in this guy's face a little bit you know, I said, you're giving our grad student a bit of a hard time and, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And next thing I know, Dan Vanderweide, that was his name. And he turned out to be one of the top professors in the engineering school. 
Dan took a spinal needle that I gave him, took it back to his laboratory, and with industrial microwave equipment, was able to make better ablations than we were making with clinical equipment at the hospital. And I said to myself, okay, I need to know more about this guy. I need to work with him. We ended up becoming incredible friends and partners. And the two of us founded New Wave together with a business person named Laura King. And it turned out that New Wave was a smashing success. I think it owns something like 70% market share in the United States. And we sold to Johnson & Johnson in 2016. Laura King, the CEO, is now the CEO of our next company, which is called Lucent Medical. And Dan is a partner and an inventor in that too. So we had a, the founding team of New Wave uh, built and sold New Wave and then moved over to start a Lucent Medical also. So it was, it's been quite the ride in the last decade, I would say. Fantastic. You've carried out a large amount of research focusing on something called histotripsy. And you're on the board of directors of Histosonics, a biotech focused on developing technology to destroy cancerous tissue. Tell listeners a little bit more about the subject of histotripsy, starting out with what it means and what role robotics plays in this technology. Yes, histotripsy is really exciting. It's one of the largest potential discoveries, I think, in the last several decades in our field. It was discovered at the University of Michigan by Charles Kane and Jen Zhu, and it has been under development for over a decade, kind of under the radar, at least on the clinical side. On the medical physics side and engineering side, people are well aware of it, and it's just starting to break out in the clinical side as the devices are becoming more effective and able to be used for clinical purposes. So I had sold New Wave Medical, and one of the venture capitalists that had funded a company called Histosonics called me up and asked me if I would be interested in looking at the company. It's working on this thing called Histotripsy. Would I be interested in looking at it and maybe getting involved with the company? They wanted some consulting and, and how to move this into clinical use, et cetera. And just out of a curiosity, and especially because the company was started at the University of Michigan, where I grew up and where my family is, I decided to go out there just on a lark and, and look at it. And I was blown away by the technology. What it is, is it is a non-invasive, non-radiation, non-thermal modality. It's an ultrasound modality. And what happens is you put an ultrasound transducer on the body. This is a big ultrasound transducer. And you send very focused pulses of very high energy ultrasound into the body. It's a little different than lithotripsy, which is non-focused ultrasound. Histotripsy is very focused at a very small point, several millimeters in size. And what happens is if you tune the ultrasound equipment just right, and this was one of the things that the Mich Michigan group has really refined over the years, if you pulse it just right, you can destroy tissue at that point. And then if you sweep the focal point across a volume of tissue, you can completely destroy the tissue non-invasively. There's no heat involved. There's no radiation. It's completely non-invasive, very revolutionary. And one of the things about it that's so exciting is that when you break up the tissue using histotripsy, there is a fairly robust immune response in the human body. And we're just learning about this immune response and how to potentially harness this 
to wake up the immune system to fight cancer inside the human body. So you not only destroy the tumor, but you wake up the immune system and teach it how to destroy other tumors that are scattered throughout the body. That's the promise of histotripsy. And it's right now, it's in the clinical trial stage. There has been one clinical trial completed in Europe, a very small trial. There's a larger 40 patient trial that's finishing up. That's both a European and a American trial. In fact, one of the sites is at Leeds. Um, ZWA is leading that uh, in the UK. And there's a kidney trial that is going to be starting uh, hopefully late this fall. So a lot of promise there, interesting um, stuff. Um, it's a combination of ultrasound and robotics to make this work. And it's, I think, what the future is going to look like. It's fascinating. Watch this space. We'll have to have you back when those trials are done and you can tell us what you've discovered. And the triumvirates completed with elucent medical, and I'm not even going to try and explain that. Assume that I'm a complete buffoon, which is not too far from the truth. And tell us about this one. Well, no, I think that's very far from the truth. But uh, elucent medical was the startup that the three founders, Dan Vanderweide, Laura King, and I of New Wave Medical took on as our second startup startup company. And this sprung from my time in radiology leadership. For about a decade, I led the clinical enterprise here at University of Wisconsin. And one of the things that I noticed was I was getting a lot of calls primarily from the operating room from irate surgeons who were telling me that patients that had breast cancer and they were having it localized in radiology before they came to surgery for removal, there was always these problems and these delays between the time that they were supposed to get the tumor localized with a, a hook wire, essentially a fish hook that we would drive into the tumor. And then we'd send the patient to the operating room and the surgeon would cut down on the fish hook and take out the tumor. And you can imagine, first you have patients that have not eaten overnight because they're being prepared for surgery. They're really scared because this is a big moment in their life. So they're appropriately scared. And then you start putting a fish hook into their breast, into this tumor. What could go wrong, right? And so, so all kinds of things would happen. People would faint. These wires would come out. Some transporter would take them to the wrong place. It was, a, I, I thought this was a fairly primitive way of doing business. And I thought that, that we could have a technological solution that would be better. And so I talked to my engineering uh, partner, Dan Vanderweide, and my business partner friend, Laura King, and we came up with the idea of instead of a wire, at the time when the original tumor is biopsied, you leave a little chip behind. It's a smart chip. It has a little computer chip in it. And then that stays in the tumor. And then at any time thereafter, the patient can come to surgery with no stop in radiology ahead of time. And then what we do in surgery is that we hook a detector to the electrocautery system, the BOVI, of the for the surgeon, and we calibrate it so that the tip of the BOVI is calibrated to the exact position in space of the chip that we've placed in the patient. And so what the surgeon sees is a they have a heads-up monitor where they can see exactly in space where the chip is, 
where the margins that they want to cut is and where the tumor is located without even cutting the patient. And then this information is updated 16 times a second during the operation and the bovi becomes a pointer. And so the surgeon never has to pick up or put down an instrument and they can cut out this tumor in 3D and seeing the margins and everything all the time. The early data, we've done almost 4,000 patients now. The early data looks like this will decrease re-excision and positive surgical margin rates and hopefully decrease economic costs and surgical time. So I think this is going to be a, a successful company as well. And we're, we're well on the way with, with almost 4,000 patients done already. Wow. Astonishing. Productive mind, as I said. Well, that leads me on to, a, I guess, a philosophical question. And before I ask it, let me clearly state I'm on your side. In fact, I've written articles and given interviews about why it's a good idea. So you're clearly a very productive academic physician, and yet you're involved with commerce. But there's a, a cadre of people in America who believe that doctors shouldn't do such things, that any kind of commercial activity is an inherent conflict of interest. You know, they call these people pharma scolds, P-H-A-R-M-A, pharma. They, they scold the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. What would you say to counter those arguments? Maybe set the scene for our listeners. Well, thank you for this question, because this is a, an area of interest of mine, obviously, and, and yours too, I can see. So the way I think about this is certainly there can be problems with physicians involved with industry. And we've all heard some of the stories of abuses and lack of transparency as doctors push certain treatments and, and that sort of thing. And, and of course, that that's, that's a problem and that needs to be managed carefully and that's what conflict of interest committees, universities, and oversight boards are supposed to do. And I think they function pretty darn well for the situation. But the way I think about this, about physicians being involved with industry, and especially medical devices, because this is my area of interest, is that if physicians such as you and me are not involved with industry, well, then what happens exactly? And now being inside of the industry a little bit and having a view from both inside and outside industry and the medical system, the answer is that if physicians are not involved with the development and the improvement of devices, well, then the people that do do that, that invent these things and bring them to market are engineers and marketers and business people and lawyers. And I don't think that that's the best way to go about it. I think that the best way in my experience is for a team that involves those people because certainly they have a role and especially, I mean, I've, I've met some incredibly smart business people and marketers and things, but they need us to tell them exactly how this is going to work from both the physician and the doctor side. I'll, I'll give you one example, Jonathan. This really lives with me a little bit is that I was in a board meeting and I, I won't say which company or, or the individuals involved here, but I was at a board meeting. And at the time, the question was, when do the clinical trials get started? And one of the investors, who is a very smart person, said, you know, kind of pounding the table and saying, we need data, we need human data. And, you know, most of the time board meetings in, in good companies are 
collegial and collaborative and productive and things. But and and that's the way that I try to approach them myself. But in this case, I just had had it. And when this kind of question came up, I stopped the meeting and I said, you know, and and I, I don't want to try to make myself be some sort of, you know, ethical hero here because I wasn't, but I was just thinking about it from the my point of view and my point of view from having to run the equipment in a patient and, and from the patient and their family's point of view. And I said, you know, there's really only one person in this room that has been responsible for patients that has had things go horribly wrong with devices and then has to walk out and explain to the family why this went horribly wrong. And unless you've lived that, it's very difficult for you to understand why we feel so passionate about doing this. I mean, we we all want to do the best for the patient and for their families, but it's only those that have actually failed because a device has not gone so well or, or something has not worked so well and have to take responsibility for it that really understand how important this is. And so I stopped the board meeting and said, we don't need human data, we need great human data. And I'm going to tell you when this device is ready to go into humans. And the board member, to his credit, is absolutely, you know, agreed with me, absolutely. And they saw when I explained the situation to them, they they understood it and saw it and completely agreed with me. But I think that not having physicians at the table runs the risk of crazy things happening. And it's it's too dangerous. It's just too dangerous. We have to be at the table or or we're going to be taking responsibility for things we don't want to take responsibility for. Full, fully agree with you. So as we head towards the top of this recording, you know, the pandemic's affected every aspect of our lives. And in medicine, it's accelerated the deployment of a practice many had resisted, remote or virtual care delivery. You know, radiologists and dermatologists were really at the forefront of this before the pandemic, you know, sending images across the wire to to look at and to report on. You know, radiologists are capable of reading a CT scan or an MRI from their home. There's no reason why they have to be at the hospital. But for interventional stuff, maybe not so much until you throw in remote robotics. And then it all starts to get rather interesting. Where do you think this is all heading? Well, you know, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I do a lot of procedures, of course, and I have some incredibly talented partners. They are so good at these procedures. And I watch them do procedures and I think to myself, you are an artist. The way that you handle a needle and you put it in the right spot and it's so safe and it's so fast and it looks so easy. And I'm I'm sure, Jonathan, you as a surgeon, you're probably like that. And you've seen people that are like that, that make things look so easy and so simple and so fantastic and wonderful. But I think to myself, is that really the future of medicine? Are we going to, are we going to spend all of our time teaching people to be da Vinci? I mean, what about people that are just average at the field? I mean, we need, in in my opinion, we need technology to raise the floor, not just to raise the ceiling. We need people that are good or average in the field to have results that are as good or close to as good as those that are great in the field. So when I think about procedures today 
in my world, most of the procedures are really manual and they take manual dexterity and eye-hand coordination and things. And some people have it and some people don't. And I think we have to level the playing field. And, and that's the way I think about robotics in my field is th they're going to make everybody as good as my partner, Lewis Hinshaw, for example, who's, I think, the best in the world at putting needles into really tough places. But there aren't that many Lewises out there in the world. And I'm hoping that technology will help close that gap. And it's funny because Lewis, when I talk to him, he somehow sometimes doesn't understand. I mean, he understands, but he, he, he doesn't need advanced technology to do incredibly hard things. Very similar to Andy Adam, probably doesn't as well. But for us mere mortals out there and for the next generation of people that we want to try to advance the field, every technological advance is hopefully going to raise the floor and make procedures simpler, more reproducible and safer. And I think in my field, I think robotics is going to do that. It's a ways away yet. And whether we do things remotely from, you know, from Asia, we're doing operations in North America or vice versa. That I think we're a little further away from. I just want to see reproducibility, safety, and excellence with the floor being raised first. And then I think we'll go remote. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's an exciting time to be alive and to be involved in medicine. And, you know, my final question for you, Fred, it's something I ask every guest. If you had three wishes to be granted that would uh, advance global health care, what would they be, Fred? Well, um, I think about the advances in medicine that have affected morbidity, mortality throughout history. And, and we all know that those advances were all public health, basically. The individual advances in technology and medicines haven't really affected morbidity and mortality on a population basis that much. And so I'm probably not the right person to, to talk about that as a radiologist. But what I will say is um, one of the observations that I've had during the pandemic that's been a little bit disheartening, but I think is a area for massive improvement is people's distrust of the, of the medical system. I was doing a procedure on a patient that had COVID and he was 40 years old and had whited out lungs and was clearly not going to survive uh, this. And he was still verbal. And when I came into the room, we were chatting and while I was setting up for the procedure and he started berating me about vaccines and about the, the danger of vaccines. And I'm thinking to myself, this is somebody who's dying from COVID, is going to leave a family behind, a young family behind. What an incredible tragedy that somebody got into his head so much that he refused to take a vaccine and now ended up in this position. And that really bothers me that, you know, and, and medicine, that this distrust of the medical system and, and medicine as a field is responsible for some of this distrust. We have not been lily white in this area. I mean, Tuskegee experiments is one perfect and terrible example of this. But there are people, I'm sure this is the same in the UK, there are people in the United States that are feeding into this distrust and amplifying it despite having no medical knowledge of their own. And I'm 
really disheartened that there doesn't seem to be a lot of consequences for, for this sort of behavior, which in my mind is similar to yelling fire in a crowded theater and, and having terrible things that, that result from that. So I guess if, if I had one wish, it would be somehow for this misinformation and this distrust of the medical system to somehow abate itself and for responsible and cooler heads to prevail and for people to regain trust in the medical system. Because when I look at the doctors and nurses and technicians that I work with every day, they only want the best for people. And it is heartbreaking to hear patients come in that are distrustful and suspicious of what their motives are and, and what they're trying to do. And it it breaks my heart. And frankly, in the United States, this has resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths that were completely unnecessary and like the patient that I described. And it's just heartbreaking. I hope that that can change sometime in the near future. Well, do I take it that's your three wishes in one? Yes, absolutely. Because it's a good one. And I was talking to a BBC reporter today about this. And I was actually sitting not far from where this nonsense about vaccine hesitancy was born. And I always tell people, tell me, how many cases of tetanus have you seen recently? Anyway, yes, Fred, I have to say, I'm sadly, that's what we have time for today. I really want to thank you, Dr. Fred Lee, for taking the time to talk to us today, sharing your experiences, and frankly, all you're doing for patients, either personally or with your brilliant innovations. Truly been a pleasure speaking with you, and I'm looking forward to getting together with you in person. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. So folks, please tell your friends about the EMJ podcast, if you've enjoyed it, of course. Mind you, if you haven't enjoyed it, you're probably not listening at this point. And if you did enjoy it, please like us on social media. And please join us next week for another foray into the fascinating world of medicine. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Stay curious.